Well, let's open to Luke chapter 19. I had planned to resume our work through the Gospel of John this morning, even knowing that this weekend marked the anniversary of 9-11. Since we had spent several Wednesday nights talking through the problem of evil and suffering and 9-11 in the last 20 years, I really figured I could go back to John 1. But yesterday, about 2 o'clock, I changed my mind. After Mary Margaret printed the bulletins, So I'm going to do something I haven't done before. I'm going to preach a message that uh, has not gelled. Normally I write sermons and I put them away for six months and come back to them and review them and and preach them. And uh, yesterday about two o'clock after just digesting so much of the news and looking at the faces of a grieving public, thinking about the last 20 years in our country, thinking about the collapse of those towers and the great evil that happened 20 years ago and thinking about where we are now, it almost seemed inappropriate for me to just sort of go back to John and keep going forward. So I am going to stop today our progress through John. And you said you haven't made much progress, I know. All right. (laughs) We'll come back to it, Lord willing, next week. But here we are, 20 years out, and... Many, many people are hopeless, and we are in the midst of a raging pandemic that we thought would be gone by now, and we are looking at a very dire situation in Afghanistan that many saw coming, and we didn't want to think it was going to come, and yet it has happened. And we need to pause, I think, and we need to reflect, and we need to interpret And, most importantly, we need to leave here today with some hope. All right, all is not lost. So, what I'm going to do today is maybe a little bit scattered, all right? I just want to talk with you uh, through 9-11 and what happened and how we're supposed to think about this and how we react to this. And uh, if I fail this morning, it's because I decided to do this yesterday at 2 o'clock. And as soon as I decided to do this, Colin said, Dad, would you play a game of chess with me? I said, of course, it's Saturday. So, <laughs> literally at 5 o'clock this morning, I woke up and I had, I, had, I had two sermons. I had John 1 and I had what I'm going to preach, and I thought, what am I going to do? I, 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 I didn't know as of 5 o'clock this morning. I just prayed. I said, God, what am I supposed to do? And I went down to my office and flipped in the light and just started looking at some scripture, and I thought, I better just go forward with this this morning. In Luke 19, Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem on his donkey. The Galilean pilgrims celebrated his arrival with swaying palm branches and cloaks strewn in the streets before them. And Jesus comes plodding in on his donkey. But Jesus, looking into the future, knew that destruction was coming upon that city. And in verse 41, we read, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Two days later, Jesus delivered the Olivet Discourse. And Matthew tells us again, he wept over the city. That's an appropriate response to destruction And now turn to Lamentations chapter 5. Lamentations chapter 5. 
Let's recall where we were 20 years ago when we too wept over the city. We were transfixed to our television screens watching repeated footage of modern jets slamming the Twin Towers in New York City. An hour and 42 minutes after impact, both massive buildings were reduced to smoldering ruins. A third airliner roared over the nation's capital and exploded into the Pentagon. The wreckage of a fourth was strewn across a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We all remember precisely where we were when the news first reached our ears. And the question on everyone's mind was this, where is God? That's the same question the Jews asked when Jerusalem had been destroyed some six centuries before Jesus. Lamentations 5 and verse 20. Here is a lament over the city. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? On 9-11, church doors were flung open wide to a flood of weeping, perplexed, and frightened Americans. Flags hung limply at half-mast for a proud nation now very uncertain about its future. Terrorism had reached our shores. Congregants could be seen pouring their tears out at altars at churches all across America. The cacophonous emotions of righteous anger, patriotism, sorrow, and uncertainty just burned in our hearts. If you've ever gone to another country, you know that perhaps the first thing you do is go to the bank or to the money exchanger, and you trade in your currency for the local currency. I'm always curious to take that local currency and to examine it. Imagine someone coming to the United States for the first time and going to the money exchange, and there he sees printed on those bills, those mediums of exchange, the small, from the small coins to the large bills, the words, in God we trust. There are literally hundreds of millions of people in this country, and every day they make millions of trades with other Americans with that currency. And all those mediums of exchange say the same thing. In God we trust. And this country has been blessed with a kind of prosperity that no other nation has known in the history of the world. If you would just for a moment think about the clothing that you're wearing and your jewelry and your gold wedding ring, do you realize that you are wearing... What you're wearing, let me say it that way, what you're wearing is worth more than the yearly income of millions of people all over the globe. What you're wearing right now. We are very, very wealthy people. And I'm not here to condemn our wealth. Do we not attribute this bountiful, astonishing wealth to God Think about the epicenter of all those millions of transactions that were engaged in by the world's wealthiest people, those two iconic towers in New York City. 
the amount of wealth that passed to the Trade Center since it was opened in 1973 would just stagger the imagination. I'm not actually sure that we could even calculate how much wealth just passed through those towers. And one bright morning, those towers disappeared. In their place, an ominous billowing cloud of ash and smoke just enveloped the New York City skyline. And with those buildings disappeared nearly 3,000 lives, just gone in an instant. And now we know that was just the beginning. According to Forbes, the U.S. spent $300 million per day for the last 20 years fighting the Taliban. $300 million per day. According to the Watson Institute at Brown University, 801,000 people have died since 9-11 in the ensuing wars and their side effects. 335,000 civilians have been killed. As recently as August 29th, our president responded to the terrible killing of 13 U.S. Marines. In a drone strike, we can't say for certain, but apparently killed the wrong man and seven children. Some 38 million peoples, it's estimated, have been displaced from their homes as refugees over the last 20 years. 38 million people. 20 years ago, we saw the horrible footage of a single, desperate individual falling to his death along the vertical rise of the Twin Towers. And that image, I suspect, still haunts us. And more recently, we saw the horrible footage of a single, desperate individual falling to his death from an American transport plane as it lifted off the ground from Kabul airport. That image will haunt us for many years to come. And it really does leave us with questions. Are we any better off today than we were 20 years ago? In God we trust. But where was God on the morning of September 11, 2001? And where was God in Paris, in the Paris massacre, or the bombing of Istanbul, or the bombing of the Boston Marathon, or the Mandalay Bay shooting in Las Vegas? Where was God last summer when we were daily, daily burying more COVID-19 victims and died on 9-11? Friends, this is really not a new question, but a perennial question that just keeps coming back. Where was God in the Holocaust? The Rwandan genocide? The Khmer Rouge in Cambodia? When King Leopold II of Belgium introduced the horrors of slave trade to the Congo, it's, tr- it's horrific. Where was God in the typhoons that washed over Japan and Indonesia? Where was God when the world went to war twice in the last century? Where was God in the infamous rape of Nanking and the Bataan Death March? 
Where was God in 1910 when the largest forest fire in American history burned through Montana, Idaho, and Washington? Where was God when swarms of locusts descended on farmers' fields in South Dakota and Nebraska, Nebraska and Kansas and devoured entire harvest in minutes? Friends, in the last millennium, there have been some 43 natural disasters claiming in excess of 100,000 lives at a stroke. Plagues, floods, hurricanes, famines, landslides, and volcanoes. So where is God? That's the question we always ask. That's the question the world asks. And that question rumbled through Europe on November 1st, 1755. On that day, at 9.40 in the morning, a 9.0 magnitude earthquake rippled to the city of Lisbon, Portugal. Shockwaves from the earthquake were felt as far away as Finland and North Africa. Forty minutes later, a massive tsunami erupting from the earthquake's epicenter, 120 miles out in the Atlantic, just rolled in and enveloped the lower elevations of the city. Then came a fiery conflagration that burned the city for five days. Lisbon was gone. And with it, up to half of its population. So where was God? And that question became suddenly poignant because the earthquake struck on All Saints' Day, a day that was set apart for religious feasting and festival a day set apart for the remembrance of all God's blessings. But unlike the people of New York City and Washington, D.C., who poured into the churches on 9-11, there were no churches in Lisbon to turn to. The churches were all destroyed. So where was God? Now, friends, I cannot, in a single sermon, work through all the philosophical and theological dimensions of this question. I'm not going to even attempt to do that. But I would like us to think carefully about this question. And that's because we have not seen the end of tragedy in our country. I don't know what's coming next, friends, but we have not seen the end of tragedy. We most certainly have not seen the end of terrorism in our country. And if not today, in the future, we will ask this question, where is God? And if you're not prepared to answer that question when it comes from the lips of your neighbor, how are you really going to be effective evangelist? We really need an answer to that question. Now, right at the heart of that question lies a theological mystery. And let's just deal with it succinctly. This came up on Wednesday night, and I worked through it in about two minutes. I want to come back to it and work through it in a little bit more detail, but not take too long with it. Friends, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then why is there evil in the world? Supposedly, the Christian worldview falters with these three axioms. God is all good. God is all powerful. Then why is there evil in the world? The famous skeptic David Hume put it this way. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. 
Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent or he's bad. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? And Hume asked that question in response to the Lisbon earthquake. Dealing with this issue, the church father Augustine asked a perceptive question, which he asked is a more excellent creature, a horse or a stone. We all recognize that a horse is a far more excellent work of creation than a stone because a stone just lies there inertly on the ground. What makes a horse a better work of creation, a greater work of creation? The answer is the horse has the capacity for self-movement, for choice. A horse has a brain and a capacity for responding to stimuli. It can move itself toward food and water. It can run freely across the meadow. Its energies can be harnessed to pull the plow and to carry the rider. A stone, on the other hand, has precisely zero capacities to accomplish much of anything at all. It just sits there. But what if, says Augustine, that same horse has the capacity to just throw off its rider because it has the power of choice? What if the capacity for choice brings with it the possibility that the horse might have a different agenda than the one who harnesses his energy to pull the plow? After all... How could it truly have a capacity for choice if it could not do otherwise than what it was directed to do by its master? We wouldn't call that a choice. We would call that a robot. So, which is a more excellent creation? The horse, even with his own agenda or the stone. And we still say the horse. And that's because we recognize that inherent to having a brain and inherent to making a choice, you have to have some measure of free will. Now, don't get hung up on the Calvinist-Arminian debate over free will. That's a different debate than what I'm talking about right now. To change the analogy... Don't we all view human life as greater than robotic life? Would you rather be told by your child, Mom, I love you, or be told by a robot, Mom, I love you? The latter means nothing. We always choose the child because we recognize the robot is merely programmed to make a sound. Its affirmation of love means nothing at all. But when a child chooses of his own volition to tell you, Mom, I love you, every parent knows there's just nothing quite like that in all the world. My child loves me. So, here's where Augustine is going. Was God creating more excellent works of creation when he created humans with the capacity for choice than he would have had he made us all robots who just perfectly obeyed all the time? 
Would God rather be told by a robot, God, I love you, or would God prefer to be worshipped for eternity by volitional beings? And again, you can see where Augustine is going. When God made Adam with the capacity for choice and the capacity for self-movement, he was making a truly extraordinary work of creation. Now follow this, the human capacity for choice. The human capacity for responsibility and consequential action is far, far, far greater than the horse. And consequently, a human's greater capacity for choice brings with it a greater capacity for good, a greater capacity for love, and a greater capacity for rebellion. A greater capacity than any other creature to bring rebellion into God's creation. Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote in the Brothers Karamazov, people talk sometimes of bestial cruelty, but that's a great injustice, an insult to the beast. A beast can never be so cruel as a man, so artistically cruel. Talk about flying planes in the buildings, artistically cruel. Imagine all the mental energy that went into that plan. And he continues, if the devil doesn't exist, but man has created him, he has created him in his own image and likeness. Doesn't it feel that way? I thought we were in the image and likeness of God. It sure feels like some of us are in the image and likeness of the devil. And maybe all of us. Friends, there is really indeed great evil in the world. It's true. Because God made extraordinary creatures. Now, those are the basics of how Augustine responds to the question of how simultaneously an all-good, all-powerful God can exist beside evil in the world. God gave us the extraordinary gift of choice. We wouldn't be human without it. And we chose rebellion. Now, lest you think this is just Augustine, here's what Calvin writes. Therefore, God provided man's soul with a mind by which to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong. Man by free will, this is Calvin, Adam by his free will had the power, if he so willed, to attain eternal life. Here it would be out of place to raise the question of God's secret predestination. Therefore, Adam could have stood if he wished, seeing that he fell solely by his own will. All right, Our capacity, friends, to love God is enormous. But so, too, is our capacity for self-destruction and for evil. Now, there's so much more that could be said. But I'm going to leave that issue right there because I suspect that many people have a very different question when they ask the question, where is God? Very often, they're not thinking about the theological axioms Here's what they're thinking. Where is God in this very confusing world? A world where 20 years after 9-11, we seem to have made no real progress. 
A world where all the progress we thought we had made with COVID-19 seems to have evaporated with the escalation of new cases. A world in which the country of Haiti, having been rebuilt after a devastating earthquake, has been toppled again. Where is God when the hurricanes just keep on with all their fury just spinning against our coast? Where is God when our nation weeps? And I just want to make sure that we don't have anybody here today that is beginning to wobble in their faith. I don't want anyone here that is just roiled by doubt. I, I Friends, I, what I want to do is I want to give us four reasons that we just need to reaffirm our faith. Four reasons to just really reaffirm our Christianity. And again, I'm not working through a text of Scripture this morning, but again, I just want to talk with you. Let's just reaffirm our faith in four points. Number one, Christianity affirms our longing for justice. Christianity affirms our longing to see pain overcome and justice restored to the world. Christianity tells us that indeed we were created in the image and likeness of God, and that God is a God of love and justice. Justice. Our faith teaches us that God is the source of our longing to see a world restored, a creation renewed. It's a valid desire that we have. But for the consistent unbeliever, with a naturalistic, godless view of the world, there really is no such thing as good and evil. Richard Dawkins has said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, No evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I I can't identify with that world, and I don't have to because I'm a believer. But that is a consistent, atheistic, naturalistic view of the world. There is no such thing as good and evil. The atheist knows that if we are going to render moral judgments about right and wrong... There must be a moral standard of right and wrong. And where does that standard come from, if not directly from God? The atheist must come to terms with the truth that he really cannot even have a discussion about right and wrong, good and evil, without presupposing the existence of God. Without God's rule, without God's morals, we can't even think about right and wrong. So for the Christian, when we yearn for and pray for and work for and hope for justice and hope for the the, the creation to be restored, we are actually entirely in line with God's purposes. We acknowledge the world is indeed broken. We acknowledge that indeed God is our creator. We acknowledge that indeed we have rebelled against him. And we acknowledge that indeed his gospel will work. His gospel will bring hope to our world. So 
So friends, Christianity really just authenticates, validates, and affirms our deepest longings for justice in our world. Look back one verse at Lamentations 5 and verse 19. Here's what our faith says. But you, O Yahweh, that's God's covenant name, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. And we know at the resurrection that Jesus himself was placed on that throne with the promise that he will rule all the nations until the end of all time. And if that's true, then skip ahead to verse 21. Here's our hope. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. That's where restoration comes from. Restore us to yourself, O Yahweh. That's primary. This is the hope of the Christian. Friends, Yahweh does sit there on His throne with Christ at His right hand through every generation. God has not been off His throne for the last 20 years. And restoration and exaltation come from God. Number two, Christianity affirms that God will bring good despite our great love for evil. Let me say that again. Christianity affirms that God will bring good despite our great love for evil. You know, very often people want to blame God for all the evil in the world. That's why they say, well, where is God? But I wonder, do they really want God to do something about it? Augustine wrote before his conversion, I became evil for no reason. The only motive I had for this wickedness was the wickedness itself. It was disgusting, but I loved it. I loved the fact that I was ruining myself. I loved falling, not the thing that I had fallen for, but simply falling itself. Doesn't that describe us? My depraved soul plummeted from God's firmament into ruin. I don't want God. He can show up and fix my problems every now and then, but otherwise I don't want Him. Isn't that the human condition? Several times in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Jews attempted to kill him. But get this, not because he did evil, but in fact because he did good. Listen to Mark 3. He said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And what's the response? And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. That happened many times in the the ministry of Jesus. He comes and he does good and we love our evil. The truth is, very often people just love their evil. They love falling the way Augustine did. They hate goodness when they see it. They want to blame God for all the evil in the world, but they want to pursue that same evil. And here's what God does. God just says, okay, 
I will leave you alone. You will give them exactly what they want. But ultimately, they discover that what they thought they wanted wasn't what they wanted at all. But sometimes he just has to really let people go. Now, friends, have we experienced God's protection and preservation in the last 20 years? Was there a 9-11 on 9-12? Was there a 9-11 on 9-13? Has there been another 9-11 since? You see, every day we are experiencing God's grace. And do we wake up and just thank God as a nation. God, we thank you for preserving us today. No, what happens is we have to have the calamity come. And then all of a sudden, oh, we need God. People call on God in calamity, but otherwise they pretty much ignore him. And so the Lord may permit us individually and our whole culture just to sink deeper and deeper into evil and its terrible consequences. And at long last, we come to our senses like the prodigal son, and we come to, to grips with how great his mercy is, how great his love is, and how unworthy we are. And we come and we just fall at his knees. And we confess God again. And God, in all of his infinite patience, just just pulls us right up out of the mire of our sin and places us on the rock. This has happened in our country. This is what happened in the Great Awakening. The time before the Great Awakening was terrible. The Lord can do this for a whole culture. But we have to come to grips with the fact that very often we just we love our sin so much that we really don't want God involved in our lives. Thirdly, Christianity affirms that God has always had a plan to deal with evil. God has always had a plan to deal with evil. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. Now, it's really difficult, I think, to appreciate this third point when you really have not been exposed to other religions. you've ever read Buddhist literature, you know that Buddhism is oriented towards solving the problem of evil. But its solution is to deny the existence of evil. Evil, according to Buddhism, is simply an illusion. Christianity presents us, friends, with two radical claims. We look at these on Wednesday night. And I say radical because these claims are unique among the world's religions. First, Christianity has always said, look, we are abnormal, not normal. What you see around us all over the world is abnormal. This isn't what it's supposed to be. Christianity has always said there is something terribly wrong with the world. There's no denying it. The Enlightenment philosophers try to tell us, in fact, we are normal. They claim that Christianity was to blame for all the evils in the world because the Christians keep going around and telling people they're evil. And if you tell people they're evil, they're going to go do evil things. So the Enlightenment philosophers say, well, just tell everybody they're good. And our problems will be solved. And then came two world wars. 
and a holocaust and the brutalities of communism, the slave trade and terrorism. And no one believes the Enlightenment philosophers anymore. Man is depraved. There's something terribly wrong with us, which is actually good news because if it ain't broke, it can't be fixed. But we've said from the beginning something's terribly wrong and it needs to be fixed. And a second radical claim of the Christian view is that our condition, friends, is so wretched and so perverse that we need divine intervention. That's the only hope. We are not going to fix our problems. Another bomb isn't going to fix our problems. And I'm not anti-military, you understand that. But another bomb is not going to fix our problems. The Old Testament prepares us, friends, for the intervention of God in human history. And when we turn to the New Testament, we are greeted by an incarnate God who in the words of verse of Isaiah 53, in the middle of verse 12, a God who is numbered with the transgressors. Think of those words. Would you have figured that out? The bright angels of heaven never comprehended how God was going to pull off His plan of redemption. God numbered with the transgressors? Impossible. But that is God's solution. He identified with us as He went down to the rivers of the Jordan. And apparently, we can't even repent like we should. So He repents on our behalf though he had nothing to repent of. And then he goes triumphantly to a cross like a lamb to the slaughter. Such a thing is unheard of among the religions of the world. And I suspect that we are just so familiar with the story of Christ's incarnation and the subsequent death and resurrection that we just don't really stop to appreciate just how counterintuitive it truly is. Blaise Pascal referred to Christianity as the religion of the humiliated God. The humiliated God. The atheist Albert Camus seemed to really appreciate the profound truth of Golgotha. Here's what he wrote. Christ came to solve two major problems, evil and death, His solution consisted first in experiencing them. The man-God suffers too with patience. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadow, the divinity abandoned its traditional privileges and drank to the last drop. Despair included the agony of death. This is the explanation of the Lama Sabachthani and the heart-rending doubt of Christ in agony. That's an atheist who recognized there's something very unusual at Golgotha. As I pointed out on Wednesday night, it really is possible to read your Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation as a response to the problem of evil in the world. 
we don't run from the problem. We say, here's where it began. And here's the solution. And here's what's happening in between. And that leads to number four. Christianity Friends affirms our desires to adopt new perspectives on evil and pain and suffering in our world. Christianity affirms our desire, our desires, to adopt new perspectives on evil and pain and suffering in the world. This is really a mental discipline that you must engage in if you are a follower of Christ. It's an act of faith. How do I look at all the trouble out there and think differently because I'm a believer? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 and 5. And the word that I want to really emphasize is the word perspective. Part of cultivating the life of faith is cultivating correct perspectives. And you don't get perspective, theological perspective, from many news sources out there. Friends, every one of us will experience trouble and affliction in this life. Solomon had all the world could offer, but he died a frustrated man. His kingdom split in two. Job died a truly happy man because he learned through evil what true blessedness is. That's perspective. If you think back for a moment to the defining moments of your life and how many of them involve trouble, difficulties, hardships, my mind always returns to my diagnosis with cancer at age 17. It really was a defining moment and a moment full of grace and goodness from God. Have you ever noticed how the greatest missionary biographies have as their subjects men and women who have experienced enormous trouble? Enormous trouble, but they emerged victorious. Well, look at what Paul writes in verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How do you commend yourself? By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. Paul has perspective. All those afflictions, hardships, calamities, imprisonments, those sleepless nights, they're all intricately related to the Christian virtues of patience and purity and love. Christians also have, friends, eternal perspective. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. We recognize that God's purposes for our lives are not restricted to time, but flow right into eternity. The atheist has some 70 years to work with. Think about the average politician in his or her 50s maybe 60s. How much time do they have to fix all the problems in our country? 20 years? Well, we've seen what 20 years can get you. Friends, God does indeed reverse the effects of all evil. But friends, He isn't necessarily going to do it on your time scale on your schedule, the final reconciliation, the final working together of all things for all good, for every believer, friends, is an eternal condition. 
Let's look at this famous passage in Romans 8 and verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things, all those troubles that Paul just talked about, they work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Do you really genuinely believe that? Would you notice the time frame that Paul is working with here? Notice how in verses 29 through 30, Paul is going to move from the infinite past where in the mysterious wisdom of God, he foreknew us. And then he moves all the way to future glorification. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Friends, that's perspective. And it's really, really wide. When you read through Romans 8, it really becomes apparent that we are trying to probe the relationship between an infinite God and our rather finite selves. God does not solve all of our problems in 20 years. He's never promised to do that. But God does solve all of our problems. And friends, isn't it also the case that Christians have a different perspective on evil in society? Not just personal evil, not just personal suffering, but what's happening out there in society. And again, as a believer, you just have to really train your mind to think this way. Ask, ask questions that unbelievers are not asking. So, for example, when you look at the fall of Rome, and the secular historian sees the destruction of a great civilization. Okay? But the Christian historian looks at that same event, and here's what he sees. The providential means by which the gospel began to convert the barbarians. Thousands upon thousands of those illegal immigrants that came pouring into the empire from the Goths, the Burgundians, and the Vandals, and the Angles, and the Saxons, and the Huns, and the Franks, and the Lombards were, in fact, converted to Christianity. Now, I'm not trying to endorse illegal, illegal immigration. That's not what I'm saying. But what am I going to do, friends, when an Afghan refugee discovers Christ alone as his Savior and becomes my eternal brother in Christ. I, I've actually been appalled at some of, what I, well, some of what I see out there posted by Christians about some of the refugees. These people need Christ. Over the last 20 years, since the Twin Towers fell, our nation, friends, and our world has been dealing with terrorism, and also a massive, massive refugee crisis involving many, many countries throughout the Middle East and down into Africa, Islamic countries in particular. Again, 38 million displaced people. How many is that? Well, take the population of South Carolina and multiply it times seven and add a few more in. And quite literally, millions of Muslims have come to Christ because they have seen the very ugly face of Islam. We have indeed had a war on terrorism going on for 20 years. 
But friends, that is not the only war that is being fought. Christians have been waging war for the souls of Muslims with more success over the last 20 years than at probably any time in the history of Christianity going all the way back to the founding of Islam in the 7th century. You don't hear much about this, but it really is true. Just listen to a few titles. A Wind in the House of Islam. How God is drawing Muslims around the world to faith in Christ Jesus. How about this? Dreams and visions. Is Jesus awakening the Muslim world? Or miraculous movements. How thousands, how hundreds of thousands of Muslims are falling in love with Jesus. The same book estimates that from their contacts, about a million Muslims per year are now coming to Christ. It has been estimated that the two fastest growing churches in the world right now are in Iran and Afghanistan. The church is growing faster among Muslim refugees in Europe than among native Europeans. Muslim refugees, Syrian refugees, who are tired of being brutalized by Islam, they're finding Christ. Dr. Bernard Cadio told me this week of the rapidly growing Nigerian church. As Nigerians are moving from the north of Nigeria down to the south to flee Islamic persecution, and they are embracing Christ by the thousands. The Back to Jerusalem movement, Chinese missionaries, is right now as we speak, penetrating many, many Muslim countries, evangelizing ISIS. I just want to read to you a few lines from a book that I just mentioned, Dreams and Visions. No, I'm sorry, Miraculous Movements, how hundreds of thousands of Muslims are coming to Christ. Here's what the authors say that they're aware of. More than 6,000 new churches have been planted among Muslims in 18 different countries. Hundreds of former sheikhs and imams, now Christ followers, are boldly leading great movements of Muslims around, out of Islam. Forty-five different unreached Muslim-majority people groups who a few years ago had no access to God's Word now have more than 3,000 churches among them. Thousands of former Muslims are experiencing the loss of possessions, homes, and loved ones, but they are continuing to serve Jesus. Multiple Muslim communities seeing the dramatic changes in nearby communities are insisting that someone must bring these changes to their community also. And more than 350 different ministries are working together to achieve these outcomes. And let me just read a little anecdotal account of one man who is doing his part to plant the gospel in an unnamed country. This is a little bit long, and I know the hour is late, but I think you'll enjoy this. A man named Namir. While working on the cart, taking people from one place to another, I mention about Jesus and tell them the gospel. He's a cart driver. So I can get access to them easily. They don't take me as a minister or evangelist. They take me as a cart driver. They will hear me better like that. So I have a chance to share of sharing Jesus with 60 people in a day. If you start being serious, they don't listen to you. They may, have, they may even attack you physically. So I start by telling them a joke and making them laugh and being friendly to them. 
Then I tell them that I used to be a Muslim. I used to drink alcohol. I was addicted to cot. I didn't have peace. So I tell them that I studied the religion I used to hate, that is, Christianity. Then I ended up accepting it. And now I have peace and satisfaction. I will start the conversation with a topic that draws their attention. For example, did you hear that so-and-so got arrested because he was drunk and fought with someone? That usually draws people into conversation. Then I turn it toward them. Do you drink too? That means I start my story that is familiar to them so that they can listen to me. A lady told me that her husband beats her. He gives cattle as a sacrifice for an evil spirit, and they are getting poor. She asked me what to do. I told her that there is a solution. I told her about Jesus, and she said, If he is going to be a solution, I am willing to follow him. She accepted the Lord as her Savior. Now she is a Christian, and she has peace and joy in the Lord. I still work as a cart driver, but I am also a church planner so I don't work full-time. I didn't stop driving because I am more effective when I am in my cart. I get to talk to many people when I am driving my cart, so I share the gospel with countless people, and more than 300 have become Christ followers. I have planted four churches when I was working as a cart driver, including the second-generation churches. There are eight churches in all. All the churches are in Muslim regions. I set a day for fasting and prayer every week. I climb a mountain and fast and pray every Wednesday. I didn't miss a single Wednesday these three years. I go there whether I am sick or not. I am praying and fasting now. Later today, I will go back and pray for five days there. I pray for the people who are in different bondages, like evil spirit, addiction, and so on, so that they get saved. I pray for the ministers around the world. I pray for the mission agency. I pray for the needy peoples. They give me their written request. I pray for the church planning in this area. I pray for those people who give what they have so that the gospel is shared. I pray that God will bless them with all that they need. I have got all the requests and answered prayers recorded. I have 904 answered prayers written down in this book. So friends, I read that because I want us to understand the gospel does not retreat. God has never yet lost a single convert. I am a loyal American citizen and I do indeed feel some genuine dismay 20 years out from 9-11. And I, like many of you, ask, okay, what, what really has been accomplished? Some good, some evil. But here's why I don't despair. I love my country, but I am also a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And I feel no dismay over the last 20 years as far as my heavenly citizenship goes. Because Jesus said this, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the nations and then the end shall come.